Welcome to the Heart Attack Thriver Podcast. My name is Brian Simpson, and I'll be your host. I'm really excited to be able to launch this podcast. It's been a while in the works, and now it feels really amazing to finally be doing it and hitting go. So I want to take a quick moment to introduce myself. As I said, I'm Brian Simpson. I suffered a heart attack five years ago this past January. And it's been a journey to get to this point. So before I get too far ahead of myself, I think it's important for me to slow down and share my heart attack journey from the beginning. As I said, it was five years ago this past January 17th. It was January 17, 2016 to be exact. I was playing ice hockey at the time. No surprise, I'm Canadian. And it was during that game that I had this crazy feeling come across me. I can't really describe it. It's a combination of lightheadedness, nausea, vertigo, and just a general what the fuck feeling. That's the best way I could describe it. It's nothing I have ever felt before and nothing, thankfully, I've ever felt since. But there was also another component to it. Above my head, just above my right eye, about a foot off my head, I saw a gold orb. I now come to look at that gold orb as something really beautiful and I'll share more about that. What I experienced in that moment was enough to stop me in my tracks. I skated to the bench. I told my teammates, I don't know what's going on. I don't feel well and I'm going home. I grabbed my equipment and I skated off the ice by myself. No one, including myself, had any idea what was about to happen next. In the dressing room, all alone, I proceeded to get undressed, still having this weird feeling. As I bent over to undo my ice skates, that's when the more textbook symptoms of a heart attack came in. I had shortness of breath and dry heaves, and then boom, in an instant, I slumped over backwards against the cold concrete wall. I remember that wall vividly like it was a block of ice. And we don't know exactly, but estimates are that I was in the dressing room like that for about 25 minutes. I was completely aware, completely conscious, but I was comatose. I couldn't move and I couldn't talk. I couldn't yell for help. I couldn't call 911 and my phone was within arm's reach. But yet here I was in the dressing room, not yet having a heart attack I soon found out, but in there all alone. The dressing room went dark. The lights were on a timer. And I was calm. I've had many people ask me this over the years. Were you afraid in that moment? Did you think you were going to die? And quite honestly, no. Not once did I think I was going to die. Not once was I afraid. And back to that gold orb, I now believe that was my guardian angel who sent me a message in that moment and said, Brian, you're going to be okay. I've got your back. So when the buzzer went to signify the end of the game, I knew help was on the way. My teammate, Malcolm Quigley, came into the dressing room and immediately knew something was wrong and came to my side. Malcolm was yelling at me, Brian, look at me, look at me. But of course I couldn't because I couldn't move. He later told me that I had virtually no pulse. I was cold, clammy, and gray in color. Malcolm was the one who said, call 911. This is where I want to talk about the checklist. I often tell people that if there was a checklist of all the things that needed to go right in order to not only survive what happened to me, but to thrive after, every single box was ticked for me. 
paramedics just happened to be having coffee five minutes away and were by my side in less than five minutes. These weren't just your average paramedics. They had all of the equipment to deal with a cardiac event, EKGs. They had all the medications, the clot busters, you name it. They were also able to give me an IV. So the paramedics, once in the dressing room, got me onto a stretcher. Once they got an IV in me, that brought my blood pressure back up and I was able to talk and share more about what I was feeling. This is box number two. Len Van Pelt, the paramedic that was handling my situation, was so calm. Len proceeded to go through a whole workup of me, explaining every single step of the way. And when they got the EKG on me, Len saw something that showed that I was having heart troubles. But he said to me, you're not having a heart attack, not right now. So the first procedure is to get me to the local hospital, which was about 20 minutes away. They loaded me into the ambulance in the back of the arena and we raced towards the closest hospital. Inside that ambulance, that's when the textbook symptoms, the left-sided pain, the weight on the chest, I've said it and I've heard many people who've had heart attacks say it, they call it an elephant on the chest. This weight, this imaginary weight, it was the most excruciating, uncomfortable pain that I've ever experienced. And I can remember trying to squirm out as if I could somehow magically get out from underneath this imaginary weight. But that's what it felt like. Len kept me calm. He was giving me morphine for my heart. He was explaining every step of the way. And he said, Brian, when they fix this, it'll be like it never happened. As we got close to the hospital, that's when things became officially a heart attack. I can remember vividly as we were pulling into the eMERGE bay, Len said to his partner who was driving, the second one is there. I knew exactly what that meant. On an EKG, you have two ST waves. When one is elevated, it means you're having heart trouble. When both are elevated, it means you're having a heart attack. And so when Len said that, I knew too what was going on. But because we were in the eMERGE bay, they still took me inside. Once inside, people were scrambling all around me. I can remember a good friend, Karen Harris, who was a triage nurse, who I know quite well. I coached with her husband and I coached both her boys. Karen took control of the scene and said, okay, we need to get a chart going. What's the patient's name? And when they said Brian Simpson, Karen literally stopped in her tracks. And I remember she turned and looked at me and she says, oh my God, he's the fittest guy I know. They proceeded to get me hooked up to a 15 lead AKG, so EKG so they could see the back of my heart. And as soon as they got that lead on, the doctor looked at the screen and then turned to me and said, Brian, you're having a heart attack. We gotta get you to the closest cardiac center. I was rushed back into the ambulance and quite frankly, that's the last thing I remember until I woke up on the table in the cath lab in Peterborough at the Peterborough Regional Health Center. And standing beside me was Dr. Katie Schufelt, who was the interventional cardiologist. Dr. Schufelt was a client of mine. I used to be a pharmaceutical rep for almost 20 years and I used to call on her. And she made a joke that I totally got and was totally appropriate in the moment and it was right up my alley as far as my sense of humor goes. But she said, Brian, you have no idea how lucky you are. She said something to me that I've never heard before and she said, time is muscle. And she said, you have 90 minutes to survive what you had. What's really interesting is she also shared that there was a gentleman a couple years older than me that literally had a heart attack a couple of days before mine, the exact same blockage. 
He ignored symptoms. He never survived. And that really landed for me. Dr. Shufa was able to show me on the screen what I looked like when I arrived at the hospital and show me that the back of my heart on the left side was completely dark, signifying that no blood was getting through. She then proceeded to tell me that I had a 100% blockage of the circumflex artery in the back. I had a greater than 70% blockage of the right coronary artery, and I had a greater than 40% blockage of the LAD, the left anterior descending artery, often called the Widowmaker. The fact that I was in Peterborough, so close to Lindsay, a brand new multi-million dollar cardiac interventional suite, was the next box that was ticked because the next closest cardiac center was a lot farther away. Dr. Schufelt had me discharged to the ICU from the cath lab and I spent the night there. The next morning, they did an ultrasound on my heart to get a sense of what the damage was. Dr. Schufelt appeared in my room along with her colleague, Dr. Ball, and the two of them proceeded to tell me that they'd done the ultrasound on my heart that they believed that the damage was minimal and they believed it was temporary, but we wouldn't know for sure for six months. They then told me that without a doubt, cycling saved my life. And you guessed it, that's box number four. Later that day, I was discharged from the ICU and was sent up to the fourth floor to the cardiac ward. It was there that I met Jeff Dunlop. He was the clinical trials coordinator for the Peterborough Regional Health Center and Jeff approached me about a clinical trial that they thought I'd be a perfect candidate for. This trial is box number five. What they were looking at in this clinical trial was if someone presents like I did with 100% blockage and they had other blockages that were 70% or greater, should they fix those at the same time as they're fixing the 100% blockage? Current stand of a care wasn't that. And so they said, you're a perfect candidate and we would like to enroll you in this trial. For me, it was in alignment with what I did for a living as a pharmaceutical rep. Clinical trials are a big part of what we do. And so I said yes to it for that reason, as well as no matter what the outcome was of my randomization, because the options were go in and treat or don't treat, I was going to get a level of care for the next five years that was going to be beyond anything I would have gotten otherwise. So Jeff said to me, I've got some forms for you to complete. And all the time we were talking, I said to him, well, I want you to get this uh, done so that I get fixed tomorrow. And he's like, Brian, you know that's not how it works. You have to be randomized. And as it turns out, you can't do a placebo stent procedure. So once you're randomized for either treatment or not treatment, you know what's going to happen next. And so thankfully, I kept saying to Jeff, you're going to treat me. You're going to treat me. And he just kind of laughed at me. He took the paperwork away and came back about a half an hour later with a smile and he said, you got what you wanted. He said, we're going to go in tomorrow and we're going to fix that other blockage. And for me, that was a huge relief. The next morning in the cath lab, waiting to go in, Dr. Schufelt came and talked to me and described what she thought was going to happen. And again, I woke up after the procedure and she came to me and she said, Brian, we ran into a little more than what we expected. It turns out the blockage was way bigger than we thought. And so we had to do two overlapping stents. So now I'm the proud owner of three stents. I am so grateful for the fact that that complete trial was going because I know what I'm like. 
And if I had left that hospital, been discharged, knowing that I still had a blockage of greater than 70%, I would have been all up in my head. I'm sure I would have been full of fear, anxiety. Is this going to happen again? But thankfully, I could put that to bed. In fact, it was like the shackles that would have been put on me if I had gone home, knowing that blockage was still there, were gone. And I was free to begin the rebuilding of my life. And I'll talk about that next because that's the next box, cardiac rehab. I was enrolled in cardiac rehab and I got to work with an incredible team of nurses, dietitians. But what's interesting, and this is something that I'm going to talk more about on this podcast, is one thing that I'm disappointed with is that nobody once checked in on my mental state. How are you doing? Are you depressed? Are you having trouble getting out of bed? How are you feeling overall? And we'll talk more about that in future episodes and on another podcast specifically geared to this subject matter. So my story is pretty remarkable to this point. After six months, Dr. Schufelt sent me to Toronto to Dr. Paul O. This is checkbox number seven. Dr. O is world-renowned for his work in cardiac rehab. And Dr. O wanted to do an assessment on me. So his team ran a number of tests on me prior to me coming in for a full-on VO2 max step test. For people that don't know what that is, that's something they do in cycling. And I'd done it before in 2007, before my cross-Canada bicycle trip for kids' cancer. I showed up that morning. I brought with me cycling shorts, shoes, and pedals. And they were wondering, what are you thinking you're going to do here today? And I said, I've done this test before, and I really want to replicate what I did in the past. So I want to put these pedals and my cycling shoes on so that I can really give this test a real go. We started the test, and it wasn't long. We were maybe 15 minutes into the test, and the doctor, the cardiologist who was in the room, she was an older Indian woman. I'm sorry, I can't remember her name. Dr. O was watching remotely, and there was also three technicians watching me very closely. And she kept saying, okay, we've got everything we need, Brian. You can stop. And I said, sorry, no, we can't stop. I want to keep going. I've done this test before, and I want to go until I can't go anymore. She pleaded with me not to, but I said, I want to do it. I finished that test. I went to the point where I could not even turn the pedals over any longer. And I can literally remember kind of collapsing on the bars of the stationary bicycle. And just that feeling that I did it. Once I was recovered and showered, I was taken into a small room where I met with Dr. O and his colleague. And Dr. O looked at me and said, Brian, why are you here? Why did you want to have this test? And I looked at Dr. O and I said, Dr. O, it's because I want to know what I can do, not what I can't do. He looked down at the piece of paper in front of him. He said, Brian, there's absolutely no sign of a heart attack. Go live your life. Check number seven. In the months that followed that test, I left a 25-year marriage. Three months later, I was restructured out of my job in Big Pharma. I can remember during that meeting when I was let go, the person that hired me was the one that had to tell me that there was no longer a position for you at this company. She said to me, Brian, sometimes when a door closes, another one opens and you need to walk through it. And I turned to Chantel and I said, Chantel, I'm going to run through it. I can go to India now. 
So a little after a month after I lost my position at the company I was working for, I got on a plane and headed to New Delhi in India. I'd met a Buddhist monk at the airport in Amsterdam back in November when I was watching my son Bailey compete in Holland. We met at the airport when I first arrived, as, as it turned out, he was on the same flight back to Toronto and sat behind me. This was no coincidence. During the flight, he and I got talking and I was sharing my journey. I'd learned to meditate and I was practicing mindfulness as part of my recovery from my heart attack. And I got emotional when I was telling him about my story. And he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Brian, I can help you heal from the inside out with meditation and mindfulness and you should come to India to work with me. So I said yes to that. He arranged for a young Buddhist monk who was learning English to personally escort me around India, retracing the path of the Buddha, and then took me up into the high Himalayas to his village, which he had not been since the earthquakes had happened six or seven years previous to that. It was a spiritual journey like no other. One of the things that happened for me on this journey since my heart attack is I've become very spiritual. I've had an awakening of sorts and I see life and the world differently. It's one of those things when you start to really be open to possibilities and all that's going on around you. I often call them the breadcrumbs or the fairy dust. These so-called chance meetings, I don't believe in chance anymore. Just like I don't believe that my heart attack was chance. I now, through this journey, have come to realize that my heart attack was a gift. The greatest gift besides fatherhood and the birth of my son Bailey and a teacher like fatherhood, a teacher that taught me so much. And the great thing about it, like the saying goes, when the student is ready, the teacher appears, and my heart attack was my teacher. The big difference, I was ready for it, and I was ready to listen and dive in, because what's happened in the years since is a lot of deep personal work. It's led me to become a life coach. It led me to take a motorcycle trip when I returned from India, all the way from Canada to Costa Rica and back solo. That's a story for a whole nother episode and hopefully will become a book one day as that's one of my goals once I get this podcast up and running is to really start to focus in on that as well. So at this point, I'm going to end my story and it'll pick up here and there over the course of this podcast. But I want to just take a moment to say a few thank yous. I want to thank Malcolm Quigley for his quick actions, Len Van Pelt for being such a caring, thoughtful paramedic and for keeping me so calm. I want to thank Dr. Katie Schufelt for the care I received in hospital and for being on call that day and being there to save my life and for that referral to Dr. Paul O in Toronto. I want to thank my family and all my friends that were there and supported me through this journey because it's not been easy the whole time. It really hasn't been. It's been a journey to become a heart attack thriver. And I want to thank my partner, Adrian. Again, another story for another podcast, how she and I met. I'd love to have her on as a guest, and I'm going to spring this on her in this podcast when she listens to it. So that's essentially where I'm at. Uh, thank you so much for listening, for taking the time and the interest in following me on this incredible journey that we're on together. I want to close off with a poem. This poem was gifted to me by a friend 
You Know Who You Are. It's by Derek Wolcott. It's called Love After Love. The time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door in your own mirror and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit and feast on your life. Bye for now.